Well, good morning. Kids, is it time? All right, adios. Kids, go ahead and head off to practice your Christmas program, and uh, looks like they're heading out. For the rest of you guys who are sticking around here, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew chapter 1 is where we are going to begin this morning. We will actually be jumping around in the text, so uh, we'll start in Matthew, and hopefully you can keep up uh, this morning. We have been in our Christmas series called Men of the Manger, and we have seen a couple uh, groups of men. First of all, we looked at Joseph and uh, how Joseph was a righteous and godly man. Then last week we looked at the shepherds and we saw how they responded to the good news of Jesus Christ being born that night. This morning we wrap up our series, The Men of the Manger, with part three, Jesus Christ. I will call him the man of the manger because the manger ultimately is about him. And so we move from the men of the manger to the man of the manger, Jesus Christ. And so if you are in your Bibles to Matthew chapter one, that's where we will get started. Let's do this. Let's pray. And then we'll jump right in and see what we have to see this morning from the text about the man of the manger, Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for all of these people who have come to hear from your word. Indeed, as we open the Bible, we hear from you. And these are your inspired words. Uh, They are accurate and wholly true and altogether helpful as they reveal what it is that you want us to know about yourself and about us and how we are to relate to you. In particular, for the past couple weeks, we've been looking at the birth accounts. We've been looking at the very beginnings of the gospels of your son, and we've seen wonderful things about his birth. We've seen a man uh, named Joseph who, out of sheer grace and mercy, uh, adopted your son as his legal son, and we've seen his holy and godly character. We've seen the shepherds and how they've responded to the good news that the angel pronounced that a savior has been born for all mankind, and they went and they sought after him personally. And this morning, we have a lot to learn from the birth accounts about your son. In fact, it's overwhelming as we scan through these few pages in the beginning of Matthew and Luke, we see a ton about who your son is, what his name is, what he's going to be, what what you declare him to be already, even as a, a simple child in a manger, and what he's going to do because he grew up in Jesus Christ. You are no mere baby, but you are the God man, and you grew up to live a perfect life for us. You grew up to die in our place for our sins and to be resurrected from the dead, to be king and God and Lord. And you call all people everywhere to repent from their sins and to trust in you and you alone, to be right with God. And you offer us eternal life. You offer us a new birth. You offer us new beginnings. And you offer us the Holy Spirit to come and to indwell us and to help us live this life of following after you as a believer in Christ. Thank you that you have done that. And thank you that it all began some 2,000 years ago in a dirty, smelly manger. Thank you for you, your humility, Jesus. Thank you that you came. Thank you that you love us. And it is in your name that we pray. And God's people said, amen. Several years ago, it's been about four years ago now, we were pregnant with our first child, and we were expecting a boy, and of course you know him as Asher today. But I remember during the weeks that preceded his birth, we anticipated, of course, his birth and his coming, and we had no idea what uh, would become of our lives. (laughs) We had no idea how our life would change with the birth of one child, and boy, did it change on December 30th of 2000 and what? I don't know, eight, I think, some, some four years ago. 
uh, our life changed dramatically. And I remember the weeks that preceded his birth. We don't, mo- uh, don't watch TV very much. We're not really TV watchers. But, of course, there was a show that caught our eye, and it was on TLC. It was called The Baby Story. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or anything, but hopefully you've at least heard of The Baby Story or are familiar with it. But for those of you who are not familiar with The Baby Story, essentially it's a, a 30-minute program, and it highlights The Baby Story. It highlights a couple's oftentimes dramatic or unusual experience from the final weeks of pregnancy until, uh, you know, maybe the first week or two of the, the birth of the child. And oftentimes when you watch a baby story, things that are dramatic or unusual happen, and, and it kind of made us fearful. Oh my gosh, what, there are all sorts of things that can happen, you know, when we have this child, and of course it, it went very well. But I remember watching that show and thinking, man, there are, are, are a ton of unusual and weird things that can happen in the birth of a child. And now as I've pondered this Christmas season, the birth of the child, Jesus Christ, I began to think that, you know, if TLC was around way back then, they would be all over this baby's story. Uh, what I began to do this week as I prepared for this, for this sermon was look at the gospel accounts. I looked at the gospel of Matthew, and I looked at the gospel of Luke, and I asked myself this question, what do we have to learn about this child? What do we have to learn about this man, Jesus Christ, just from the birth accounts, just from this baby's Story, this unusual and dramatic story that we get in the Gospels. And we find out quite a bit. In fact, as I looked at my computer screen, I think I had about 10 pages worth of notes. And I usually have about one and a half pages worth of notes for a typical sermon. So I could deliver about five sermons worth of information on Jesus Christ and what the Gospel accounts tell us about who he is and what he did even as a child and what he's going to do when he grows up. There's just so much there. And I began to think, man, TLC, would be all over this baby story. I mean, just think about, just think about the story and how unusual it was. It starts off with an, an angelic visit, right, to Mary and to Joseph. It then continues with a virgin conception, a virgin birth, and a divorce that is averted. It continues with an unexpected trip as uh, the, the young couple has to go to a small, crowded town in the middle of nowhere. And then, of course, the birth in the most unusual of places, an animal shelter, most likely out under the stars. And then it concludes with some unlikely visitors as the shepherds came to worship and to find out about this newborn king. It's quite a story. It's quite a story. And we find out all sorts of things about this baby who would become a man. And so as we turn now to look at the man of the manger, Jesus Christ, what I wanted to do was whittle it down. I tried my best not to give you five sermons, but to give you one sermon, and I'm sure you're all grateful for that. But what I'd like to do is look at four things. So if you're taking notes, just jot down one, two, three, four. And what I found, I've kind of whittled it down to four things. First of all, a couple things that Jesus did at his birth. That is, what did Jesus do at his birth? And then a couple things that Jesus would do. A couple things that Jesus would do as he grew up to be a man, as he grew up to be the Savior, as he grew up to be the Messiah. So let's take a look first at a couple things that Jesus did, a couple things he accomplished simply at his birth. And the first one, jot this down, 
he fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. The first thing that strikes you when you look at the gospel accounts is how often the scriptures say when, when this happened in the birth of Jesus, it was to fulfill something that was said long ago. It says oftentimes, and thus this fulfilled that which was spoken in the prophet, whatever, pick your prophet. And so the first thing that is overwhelmingly uh, obvious in these birth accounts is that Jesus' birth was foretold long ago, and his life was foretold long ago through the prophets of old. I, I just want to share with you a couple instances. When you look at, at Matthew and when you look at Luke, what you find out is that there are five Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled. That's just in his birth, okay? Not the rest of his life. Just in his birth, there are five prophecies that are fulfilled in his birth. I just want to share with you a couple to give you the flavor. The first is found in Matthew chapter 1. So if you're in Matthew, look with me at verse 23 is where we will read. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse, well, maybe 22. 21. She will give birth to a son. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And so uh, the angel tells uh, Joseph about this virgin conception and this virgin birth that would come from his wife-to-be. And then Matthew says this. He wants us to know this, that the virgin birth was foretold many, many years ago, that God had predicted that there would be a day that a woman would be uh, conceived as a virgin and she would give birth as a virgin. And so he, he lets us know in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, quote, and he quotes here Isaiah 7, 14. I'll read it to you. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so what we see here, the first significant prophecy, is that some 800 years ago, catch that, roughly some 800 years before the birth of Christ, the prophet Isaiah wrote, and the prophet Isaiah in chapter 7 predicted that there would be a woman who would be a virgin, and she would give birth to a son, and they would name him, that is, he would be called or characterized by the fact that he was God in human flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. That's amazing, that 800 years before it was predicted. Secondly, when you continue in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, turn with me to, to Matthew chapter 2, because in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, we see another prophecy that's fulfilled, and it's fulfilled in verse 6. Let's uh, get a little bit of context, and maybe we'll start reading in verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. And so the Magi come, and they, uh, they're asking for, who, where's the newborn king, right? There's a king born in Israel. We want to come and worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. Verse 4, when they had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And so he says, hey, you guys know, you're supposed to know the law. Where is this Messiah, this king, supposed to be born? So he understood that there was a predictive element, that the prophets long ago predicted the location of the birth of Jesus Christ. They said to him in verse 5, In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And here he quotes Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Notice this, for out of you will come a ruler, 
will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so they understood that the Bible had predicted, the prophets had predicted, again, roughly some 800 years ago, the prophet Micah was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. So that means, that, that means they, they prophesied around the same time period, some 800 years before there was a prediction that the Messiah, when he was born, that he would be born in the obscure small town of Bethlehem. That's an amazing thing. I did a little bit more study, and what I found out was that one commentator who's very trustworthy estimated that Jesus Christ, within his lifetime, not just at his birth, but within his lifetime fulfilled, how many prophecies do you think he fulfilled? Just take a guess. How many? Don't be shy to be wrong. Five, ten, 100, 200, 97. How about 300? How about 300? Thank you for being bold. How about 300 prophecies that Jesus Christ fulfilled just in his lifetime? That is an amazing thing. You maybe have heard this statistic, but I'd like to share it with you because it certainly uh, demonstrates how overwhelmingly uh, consistent Jesus Christ is and how impossible it is for him to fulfill all 300 of these Old Testament predictions. Uh, it's a mathematician came up with a calculation. Now, I don't know if you liked math growing up in school. I find that most, peop- most people uh, don't like math and they struggle with it. I, on the other hand, really in- enjoyed math. Uh, it, was, it was a good subject. I liked things to be black and white, and I know if X is this and Y is that, then Z is that. I I like that, and so this hit home with me. It kind of helped that my mom was a math teacher, you know, so (laughs) that helped a little bit, Uh, but mathematicians have calculated, get this, that the odds of Jesus Christ fulfilling just eight of these messianic prophecies, so what they're saying is, what would be the odds if you took just eight Eight of these 300 prophecies, what would be the odds that Jesus Christ, that one man, could possibly fulfill all of these prophecies? Well, here's, here's a big number with lots of zeros. The odds of Jesus fulfilling just eight of these messianic prophecies was one out of 10 to the 17th power. Okay, mathematicians, how many zeros is that? That's one followed by how many zeros? 17. Very good. You guys did well in math. One followed by 17 zeros. Those odds are not very good. So just to further illustrate how completely unlikely this is, that it would be just coincidence that in his birth and in his life, Jesus Christ would fulfill these prophecies. He goes on, and he says this, and maybe you've heard this before. It's still amazing to me. This is equivalent, he says, to covering the entire state of Texas God bless Texas. This is equivalent to covering the entire state of Texas. It's a big state, y'all. That's what we say. It's a big state. Everything's bigger in Texas, including the land. It's equivalent, no more Texas references. It's equivalent, because I'm going home tomorrow. It's equivalent to covering the entire state with silver dollars, two feet deep, and then marking one, just one, of those silver dollars and then mixing them all up and having a blind folded person select the marked one at the first time, at the first attempt. Did you catch all that? That is highly unlikely. And yet what we see is that time after time, when the Old Testament spoke of this Savior, this Messiah to come, we see in the Gospels in the life of Christ, he fulfilled not only eight of them, but some 300 of them. And so the first thing that just stands out when you read about the birth account of Jesus Christ is that he fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. So let me ask you this. Why does it matter? I mean, why does that matter? It's pretty cool, but why does that matter? 
Well, let me just suggest three things, why it matters for us that Jesus Christ fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. Number one, it simply proves that Jesus was who he said he was. It simply means that Jesus was who he said he was. And so when he said that he was the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father but through him, that's true. And when Jesus claimed to be God himself, it's true. And when Jesus claimed that he was the the Savior, uh, the Messiah, and that he would uh, die and then be resurrected three days before it even happened, it's true. What it means is that we can trust that Jesus is who he said he was. And if you're a Christian this morning, that should be good news because it means that you're not trusting in a phantom. It means you're not trusting in just some enigma or some character out of a fictitious book. It means that you're trusting in the Son of God and we can believe he was who he said he was. Secondly, it simply sets Christianity apart. What this means, in my opinion, is as I look at other religions, and you can name them from A to Z, when you look at other religions, what this shows us is that it's one, just one, of the things that distinguishes Christianity. It's one of the things that sets it apart. It's one of the things that gives evidence towards the fact that this religion, if I can use that term, this faith, this God, is the right one and not the wrong one. And third, it shows that God's word can be trusted. I don't know about you, but if the Bible can predict these kind of things and then they come true some 800 years afterwards, when I read my Bible and when I read what Jesus says to me and when I read the rest of my New Testament or my Old Testament and there are promises that God gives to me, there are things that he says I should do or that I shouldn't do, what this shows is that God's word is accurate and can be trusted and Jesus is real and his word is real and we can trust the Bible. That's what it says to me. And that's why it's significant. And so in our reading, we've seen one thing. What did, what did Jesus do at his birth? Simply by being born, he fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. But not only did he do that at his birth, but as we continue to read on in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verse 11, what we find is that Jesus received worship. He received worship. Let's turn now to Matthew, chapter 2, and we'll read starting in verse Oh, starting in verse 9, just to give some context. What we see is that he had some visitors. Now, this was a little bit older, when Jesus was older. We say maybe he was two or three. And the Magi came, and they came to worship him, and they came to offer him gifts. And we see that he received this worship as a young child. Verse 9, after they had heard the king, that is King Herod, the Magi went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they noticed, what did they do? And they bowed down, and they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another way. And so the second thing that I think that we see is that this child, this two or three-year-old boy, received worship. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever had a two or three-year-old boy before, I've never worshiped my two or three-year-old boy, and I hope you haven't either, okay? Whether it's your grandson or your son or your nephew or whatever, there are some great two or three-year-old kids, and I've got one, But I don't bow down to them, okay? (laughs) And I don't worship them. And and I do give them gifts. But 
but I don't see them as deity. And yet when these magi came, it's interesting because even early on in his life, Jesus Christ received worship. He received worship. Now just think about it. If you receive worship, what does that imply about who you are? It implies that you're no mere human being. It implies that you're more than human, that you're superhuman, that indeed you're God himself because in the Jewish culture, only God, only God received worship. And yet as a, as a toddler here, Jesus receives worship. And what we see as you continue to read the life of Jesus, it's astounding. People came to him, most likely Jews, but some Gentiles, they came to him and they recognized him as God, and they bowed down, and they worshiped him. You would never do this to a human being unless you were convinced that he was more than a human being, but he was God in the flesh. And so Jesus received worship. And here, from the Magi, he rightly received worship, and they gave him lavish gifts. And so what does that mean for you and I, that Jesus receives our worship. Well, certainly it means that he's worthy of our worship. Certainly it means that he's worthy of everything that we are and everything that we could give him, every emotion, every thought, every desire, every uh, tangible thing. He's worthy of that. He's the son of God. But particular, notice how the Magi worshiped him. They bowed down to him. They worshiped him and they gave him what I would call extravagant gifts. They gave him gifts that were fit for a king. They gave him gifts that you wouldn't give just anyone, but somebody of royalty. They gave him extravagant gifts. And so what does it matter for us? I would simply put it this way. It matters to us because Jesus is worthy of our extravagant worship. He is worthy of our extravagant worship. And so I had to ask myself, when was the last time that I gave Jesus a gift like the Magi gave to this young child? Now, you may not give him gold or frankincense or or myrrh, but when was the last time that we gave him something, tangible or intangible, that was considered extravagant? It's kind of costly. It's sacrificial. It kind of hurts. When was the last time you gave Jesus a, a gift that would be considered extravagant? Maybe of money. Maybe of time. Maybe of your energy. Maybe of your emotions. Is your worship ever extravagant like these magi and their worship of Jesus was? Wonderful thing for us to consider is that Jesus not only fulfilled prophecy, but he received worship and he is worthy of everything that we have. And so we've seen a couple things. We've seen what Jesus did or accomplished at his birth, but these accounts also speak of what he would do as a an adult. These verses not just speak of who he was as a child, but they speak of what he would do when he grew up to be a man. And so I want to see a couple more things. Number three, not only did he fulfill prophecy, not only did he receive worship, but he would and he did make available the forgiveness of sins and salvation. That was his primary work. He made available forgiveness of sins and salvation. If you have your Bibles open, which I hope you do, turn with me now to the Gospel of Luke. So flip towards the end of your Bible a little bit. You have Matthew, and then you pass Mark, and then you find the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 1, we see the story of Zechariah. Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist who was going to go before and kind of prepare the way. And what we see here in chapter 1 of Luke, and I will start reading in verse 
76 and 77, we see that Zechariah is singing a song. He's he's prophesying over both his son to be, that is John the Baptist, and the one, Jesus Christ, who John the Baptist was to point to. And so he says this prophetically about the life of Christ and what Jesus Christ would do. Verses 76 and 77. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. So he's speaking about his son-to-be, John the Baptist. For you will go on before the Lord, Jesus, to prepare the way for him. And then it goes on to tell what, to prepare the way for what? What would this child, this Jesus, what would he do? Notice in verse 77, to give his people the knowledge of salvation. And so Jesus gave us the knowledge of salvation And then it continues, through the forgiveness of their sins. And so what we see quite simply is that Jesus, at his birth and in his life and through his death and burial and resurrection, he made available, emphasis on the word available, the forgiveness of sins and salvation. The idea is that we needed saving. The the, the term salvation simply means to be delivered from something. And what we needed to be delivered from, obviously, was our sins because it says he's gonna save us, he's gonna provide the salvation And the means by which he's going to save us is through forgiving our sins. And so we need forgiveness of sins to be saved. The New Testament continues to uh, shed light on that. It says that Jesus Christ made a way of salvation by offering us forgiveness of sins by simply doing this. He lived a life of perfect obedience, obedience that I could never give to God, obedience that you could never give to God, but the only kind of human obedience that would be worthy to be in the presence of God was perfect obedience. I can't do that. You can't do that. No one that's ever been born can do that except for the Son of God because he's both human and divine. And so he lived the life for us that we needed to be right with the Holy God and he gives us this righteousness, this right standing with God as a gift, but also the Bible says that he offers forgiveness of sins by dying for us. That is by substituting himself in our place. The idea is that we deserve death, we deserve judgment, we deserve wrath, but Jesus Christ bore that for us in our place for our sins so that we can be forgiven, so that God can look at us through the lens, so to speak, of his son and say, I don't see your sins, but because you've placed your faith in Jesus, I see forgiveness in their salvation. And so why does this matter? Why does it matter that Jesus made available the forgiveness of sins and salvation? Well, we've talked a little bit about that already, but it matters because we need it. It matters because the Bible says that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. The Bible says that because of that, we justly receive God's wrath. We need saving, and Jesus makes this available to us. What the Bible says is that this is a gift to you. So Christmas time is the season of gifts, is it not? Most of us most likely have purchased some gift for someone, whether it be for our kids or for our our mom or our dad or our friends or family. Most of us at some point have purchased a gift. And most of us, I would reckon, would probably receive, are going to receive some kind of gift at some uh, some time. And so in a couple days, Christmas Day comes, and people will be giving and receiving gifts, right? And so that gift is made available to you. And the Bible says that this salvation, this forgiveness of sins, this reconciliation with God, this eternal life is a gift. It's wrapped up in a pretty bow in Jesus Christ, and it's offered to you. But the Bible says that you have to do something with it. It's not just good enough to say, hey, thanks for the gift. 
and never unwrap it. We don't do that, right? You're not going to go Christmas morning and say, kids, look, I got you these wonderful gifts, but you can't open them and we're going to stick them up in your closet. You don't do that, right? What do you do? You say, kids, here are your gifts, and they personally receive those gifts, and they tear open, and they say, oh, what a wonderful gift, and they play with it for five minutes, if you're like my kids, right? Uh, and then they go on to the playing with box, or whatever. But the point is that it's a gift, and they don't say, hopefully, mom, dad, thanks a lot, I really wanted this iPhone, how much is it going to cost me? They don't say that, right? Because the price has been paid and it's offered as a gift, a free gift, and all they have to do is what? They just have to receive it. They have to trust that you paid for them and they receive it as a gift and they enjoy it. The same is true of this salvation. It's to be received. It's to be personally accepted. But if we say to God, well, thanks for this gift of salvation and forgiveness of sins and man, it's wonderful to be right with you, but God, I really think I'm good enough and and God, I really think I can earn it. So I don't want to take this gift. I'm not going to unwrap it quite yet. I'm going to make a gift. I'm going to make a box uh, that I'm going to give to you and it's going to be good enough for you. That's kind of like uh, your kids saying, gosh, dad, thanks a lot, but I I really want to earn this. I really want to pay for this, right? I really want to do it better than you. Um, You might like that. Sure, you can pay for your gift. Um, But but they don't do that, right? Your kids don't do that because a gift is a gift, and when the gift that's already paid for is tried to be earned, it's a slap in the face to the giver, right? And so what the Bible says is that we personally have to receive this wonderful gift One commentator by the name of Martin Luther, an old commentator of old, says it this way, and I really like what he says. He says, the life of Christianity consists of possessive pronouns. Now, if you're not an English person like myself, pay attention because you'll see what a possessive pronoun is. He says, it is one thing to say Christ is a savior. It is quite another thing to say he is my savior and my Lord. The devil can say the first the true Christian alone can say the second. And so can you say that this morning? Can you say that he is your savior? Can you say that Jesus Christ is your Lord and not simply a savior or a Lord? Have you personally received this wonderful gift of forgiveness of sins and salvation? Or is that bright, shiny presence of salvation just sitting under the tree and just waiting for you to receive it? I pray this morning before you leave that you'll take that gift and you'll unwrap it, and you'll make it your own. Wrapping up, we've seen three things. We've seen that Jesus fulfilled prophecy. We've seen that he received worship. We see that he made available forgiveness of sins. And number four, number four, the Bible says that Jesus, even as a small child, he reveals our spiritual state. He reveals our spiritual state. So turn with me in the book of Luke, just one chapter over to Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, we're going to read, oh, starting in verse 34 and 35. Jesus comes and he's presented in the temple as good Jews do. And uh, what we see here is that uh, Jesus' parents, he's, they're encountered by a man. And this man's name is Simeon. And he's a prophet. And he speaks over them what would happen, what Jesus would do as he grew up to be a man. And what he says is that Jesus would reveal our spiritual state. Let's just read it together. Let's start in verse 33. The the child's father and mother marveled, that is Mary and Joseph, marveled at what was said about him, about Jesus. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined, notice, to cause the falling 
in the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. That means he's going to be rejected by many. So that, so that and here's the revealing, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. And so even at his birth, prophetically, what Simeon said to Mary was simply this, that Jesus was going to cause some people in their response to him to rise spiritually, and he was going to cause some people in their response to him to fall spiritually, and that he would be assigned to be spoken against, that oftentimes people would reject him, and that our response to Jesus it says that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. What it's saying is that when Jesus comes and he reveals himself t- uh, to us and we hear all of these things, that he's our savior, that he's our king, that he's our Lord, that he's our God, that he makes forgiveness of sins and salvation available simply through him, that when we hear this and when we encounter Jesus, something happens. Something happens. Our spiritual state is revealed when we are come face to face with Jesus and his claims. And that day, there were many people in Israel who would rise. That is, they would respond positively to Jesus Christ. But there were many people who would fall. They would reject him. And friends, the same is true today. The same is true today. People still accept Jesus Christ for who he is and they rise spiritually. And many still today reject Jesus Christ and they fall. You know, I, I, kind, of, I kind of think of it this way. Uh, one of my favorite seasons of the year is fall. I like it because in Texas, there was no fall. And so when I came here, not only did I get a beautiful array of colors, of oranges, of reds, of yellows, of purples, it was stunning. We didn't have anything like that down in hot, sunny, humid, windy South Texas. We didn't have a fall. And so it was a marvelous thing to come here. I still enjoy fall. That is until it's time to pick up the leaves. I don't really like that as much. Uh, Kind of tedious, especially when the wind blows and blows into your neighbor's yard which mine does, but uh, I, I love the fall season. And, and, and so I did a little research about how exactly that happened because in Texas, uh, generally speaking, the leaves don't fall. You don't have to pick them up. They're always the same color. And so I did some study. How does this happen, this whole change of color thing? And I find, fi- found out the, the real simple explanation is that when the fall comes, uh, the leaf stops producing green chlorophyll. If you remember back to biology or science class, chlorophyll is that which the, is produced by the leaf that makes it its green color, right? And so it stops producing the green chlorophyll when the fall comes, when it's encountered with a fall. And then obviously what happens is that whatever color is left, yellow, red, green, whatever, uh, whatever it is, that was the color that it was all along. That is, it reveals, fall reveals what really was inside, So I hope you see the parallel because that's exactly what Jesus Christ does. When we come face to face with who he is and his claims on our life and his demand that we personally place our faith in him and be born again, our true colors are revealed. And so what does it mean to us? What does it matter that Jesus reveals our spiritual state? Let me ask you something. When you hear these claims, when you hear that he fulfilled prophecy and that he's worthy of worship and you must personally put your faith in him for the forgiveness of sins and in him alone, what does that reveal about your spiritual state? What, what color, so to speak, what color does Jesus reveal your heart to be? Does it reveal a color of belief, of faith, of trust, of repentance, or does it reveal a color of rejection, of unbelief, and of a hardened heart? This morning, we've seen four things. 
four things, just four simple things out of quite a few that the New Testament tells us about this man, the man of the manger. And while the birth of Jesus certainly would be an amazing story, if TLC was around, they would gobble it up in an instant. It would be a classic baby story, no doubt. What we learn as we look at this life, as we look at this birth story, this baby story, is that it's much more than a story about a baby. It's much more than a story about some simple kid born 2,000 years ago to poor parents in a small hick town in Judea of Israel. It's much more than that. It's about a man and what he would grow up to do and to be. I want to read a final quote to you. Pastor Bob Deffenbaugh says it very well, and so I'd like to share this with you. And in closing, I'd like for it to be a challenge to you. Which Christ is it that you worship? Do you worship the babe in the manger, or do you worship the man crucified? Do you worship the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes that is close and easy to draw near and and cuddly, or do you worship the one who was risen from the dead three days later and took off those swaddling clothes, so to speak? Which is your Jesus? Deffenball says this, Why then is the Christmas story so important to many, even those who do not believe in Christ personally for salvation? Because I fear the babe in the manger is far less threatening than the Christ of the later Gospels, who interrupts, who interprets, excuse me, interprets and applies the law, who condemns sin and those, and he, uh, who condemns sin and who speaks of faith in his blood. The baby in the manger is sweet and cuddly and, quote, controllable. The baby in the manger is a kind of God in the box, a God in whom we are comfortable to approach, to think about, even to worship. But, The Christ hanging on the cross is not a pretty picture. He is not one to whom we are drawn, who evokes in us warm, fuzzy feelings. Many have made much, too much, of the babe in the manger because this is the kind of God they wish to serve. A kind of God who is weak, who is helpless, who needs us rather than a God God who is sovereign and who demands our obedience, our worship, and our all. And so I I will close with the question that he closes with. What kind of God do you serve, my friend? Let's pray together. Father, all of us have to ponder this question. What kind of God do we serve? And what do we say about this baby who grew up to be a man, Jesus? Jesus, you asked this question to your early followers and you asked them, who is it that people say that you are? And they gave a variety of answers that were wrong. And then they asked this penetrating question to, Jesus, you asked this penetrating question to them and you ask it to us today. But who do you, who do you say that I am? And Peter correctly responded, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the prophesied and anointed one. You are the son of the living God. And so, Father, as we ponder this, who is it that we say that your son is? We've seen that he is no mere baby, and his story is no mere birth story. He fulfilled prophecy with his life. He received worship in his life. He, in his death, made forgiveness of sins and salvation available only through him. 
and he reveals our spiritual state. And so, Father, right now, there are spiritual states being unearthed, being revealed. There are colors of people's hearts that are being revealed right now. And Father, I pray for those who look at the color of their hearts and they are not those who are rising, but they are those who are falling. They are those whose thoughts are being revealed and are speaking against Christ in their hearts. They have not trusted in him as their personal savior. They have not been born again. They've seen it as a cute story, as a Christmas time story. They have understood him to be a, a simple boy in the manger whose stories have been elaborated and made up. And I pray now that they would come to the realization that he is no mere child but the God-man who died for them and who loves them and who paid for their sins and who rose again so that they could have new life both now and for eternity. And I pray for people now as they're hearing my voice if they would say, that's me, that they would right now repent of their sins that they would turn from trusting in themselves and any other good works or good deeds to be right with you. And they would receive this most glorious of Christmas gifts, the very life and death of your son, wrapped not in a pretty bow, but wrapped with a scarlet uh, a bead of blood on his hands and on his feet and on his head as he hung on the cross. That was the, the wrapping that you gave your present in. And may they receive it personally by faith, by trusting in him and him alone accepting that Christmas gift as their own and that you would even now as we speak give them new life, forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit, a new birth and cause them to know you and to be made right with you, reconciled through this child, the man of the manger. Father, for those of us who have experienced Christ, may we marvel and trust that your word is true. It's trustworthy. We can believe it. And may we this Christmas offer gifts that are lavish. May we offer gifts much like the Magi's, whether they be gold, frankincense, or more, myrrh or, or not. May we give the gift of our life and anything else that you may want because you are worthy of our worship. And may that be true of us. Father, thank you for the season. Thank you for the day. And we ask it in the name of your Son and all of God's people said, Amen. I'm going to ask you guys to stand as we leave. I'm going to read a blessing over us.